They just came on now. Let's try to get closer to the stage. Sorry. Do you want to go on my shoulders? Yeah, that'd be unreal, thanks. Wow! Three celebrates connections made by music this summer. Find out more at 3.ie forward slash music. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is Nigel Marsh, author of Fat, 40 and Fired, Overworked and Underlaid, and the just-released Fat 50 and Fired Up. Nigel, welcome. Hi, it's actually Fit 50 and Fired Up. Uh, fit? Did I say fat? <laughs> That's a Freudian slip. Sorry. <laughs> meant to say fit. <laughs> Probably thinking of, uh, well, never mind who I'm thinking of. Not you. <laughs> Before we start chatting, um, can I just get you to read us a little from the book? Sure. Okay. Um, I, I thought maybe I would read a chapter called Lampshade. Great, wonderful. Being interested in ethics in no way means I can claim the moral high ground regarding my own actions. Indeed, I'm constantly stunned by how people, usually whipped up by the popular media, can demonize others when they fall short and make mistakes. Each of us is fallible after all. For example, when I read the newspaper reports of some unfortunate mother who has lost a child because she neglected to hold their hand when they were standing by a road, or took her eye off them when they were at the beach. I don't think, as sections of our society clearly do, silly cow, let's publicly castigate her in her hour of abject misery. I think, poor woman, there but for the grace of God, go I. Recently, my dear friend and weight loss teammate, Thomas, confided that the week before she had fed her baby daughter a teaspoon of flea poison rather than flu medicine in the middle of the night. And worse, she hadn't realised her mistake until the next morning when she opened the fridge and screamed in horror upon seeing the bottles side by side on the same shelf. I felt her horror particularly keenly because of an incident that took place ten years ago and still wakes me up at night in a cold sweat. We were on holiday in the UK and had met up with a group of friends for New Year's Eve. We had all kept in touch since we'd met at college and often went away together during the festive season. At first it was just couples, but as we all had kids, the group became pretty big. It was nigh on impossible to rent a house large enough for all of us, so we'd begun to rent cottages that were next door to each other. This meant each family could retire to their own domain during the hideous bedtime hours, but when all the kids were asleep, the adults could reconvene in one of the cottages for the evening's festivities. It was an easy matter to nip back and check on the kids. And on this particular holiday, the baby monitors worked between the different cottages, so there was no pressing need to do even that. It's hard to look back on my actions on the night in question, as in retrospect they seem so moronic and lethally irresponsible. The shame and guilt I feel is only matched by the relief that a tragedy was averted, though at the time I thought I was being considerate and loving. We were all meeting for dinner in the next-door cottage, and Kate, my wife, had left me to settle the kids before joining the group. All four of our kids were sleeping in the same room. I finished their bedtime story and made sure all the windows were closed as it was snowing outside and the cottage, which had no central heating, was freezing. As I turned the light out, our younger lad, Harry, asked if I could leave it on. When I turned it back on, his elder brother, Alex, complained he wouldn't be able to get to sleep because it was too bright. 
I then spent 10 minutes trying different combinations of hall light on, room light off, bathroom light on, hall light off, to get to a degree of light that was acceptable to all. Nothing I came up with seemed to satisfy everyone. Until, that is, I struck on a brilliant idea. I turned all the lights off bar the bedside lamp, which I put a pillow over to dim the light. All the kids agreed the gentle, warm glow was perfect. So after checking with Kate that the baby monitor was working next door, I gave each of the kids a final goodnight kiss and went to join the adults. Dinner was being served when I arrived. The baby monitors were silent. Everyone was relaxed and happy. The wine flowed. This was back in the day when I both drank and smoked. I not only smoked between courses, but during them. We all did. On this evening, the group managed to smoke so many cigarettes that we ran out before the second course. Nigel, there's a fresh pack in my handbag in our kitchen, Kate said. No worries, I'll just be a second, I replied, as I got up from the table to go next door to our cottage. Sure enough, there was an unopened pack of Marlboros in Kate's handbag just inside the front door. While I was there, I thought I'd quickly pop my head into the kids' room to check all was well. As I pushed the door open, I was met with an unmistakably acrid smell. There were gentle wisps of smoke coming from the pillow on the lampshade. I ran over and ripped it off. To my horror, the entire underside of the pillow was singed black. Close up, the toxic smell from the cheap foam material inside was sickening. The kids were still fast asleep and blissfully unaware. I opened their windows and went and sat on the kitchen floor. I was as white as a sheet and shaking. I felt physically sick. Not from the smell, but from the realisation that I had almost just killed all my children. If I hadn't come back at that moment, we would have returned to the room to find four corpses. At least a fire would have been noticeable, but smoke inhalation is a silent killer. I felt self-hatred on a level previously unimaginable. How is it possible to be so stupid? What on earth had I been thinking? Did I even have a brain? I'd been a total inexcusable idiot. Forget what I felt. What would I have even said to my wife, to my family, to the police? Yes, Kate, I put them to bed and then put a flammable toxic pillow above a hot light bulb. Yes, 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 and I shut all the windows as well. Then I went next door while they asphyxiated to death. The horror, as I relive the consequences that could have occurred if we hadn't run out of cigarettes that evening, is every bit as awful today as it was that night. And imagine how it would have been reported once the facts of the tragedy were revealed. No, on sober reflection, ethics, studies or not, I don't think I've ever got the right to judge others in their hour of personal failure. The fact is, shit happens, whether due to parental idiocy or just random, unavoidable bad luck. And when it does, we'd all do well to look inside ourselves for an empathetic and supportive response, not a censorious and judgmental one. Mm. Hearing that story the second time sends shivers down my parental spine. <laughs> I mean, I think we can always, maybe not to that extent, hopefully, but um, I think we can all uh, all associate with the terror of parenthood and how easy it is to do stupid things like that. Yeah, honestly, I, I mean, I, it just it, it just in retrospect, I mean, it's impossible to explain how you could be so stupid. But at the time, you know, I don't know, just felt utterly normal, and yeah. So there you go. 
even conciliatory because we've all been in situations where we've had multiple children wanting different things. Yeah. Oh, God. I, I, I'm now a little bit uh, like people who, who, you know, unfortunately and tragically ha- know people who have lost children in, in swimming pool accidents. They They become... You know, extraordinarily sensitive to other people's actions. I, I become a bit paranoid about you know people putting you know people to sleep and not being around and all that stuff. But there you go. It's um you know you live and you learn. Yes. In terms of the overall book, I suppose that's a pretty good example of one of the things that sets this book apart from other books which might be classed as self-help. Um, this notion of empathy and and understanding and tolerance. Yeah. I mean, and I um. I've just a little piece of me has just died <laughs> because I hate being called self-help. <laughs> oh, oh, no, that's all right. That's completely fine. People can can respond to the book however they however they choose. I mean, but but for me, it's very very important to me that that what I'm doing is uh, just telling a story about me, and I'm not giving other people advice. And I'm allergic to those books which are you know seven tips to be as clever as I am and all that stuff. It is. Uh, I just hope by using humour and honesty, I can potentially get under the radar of people where a few stories may resonate and and then make them think about certain issues. And whatever conclusion they then come to is fine by me. It, it, it's just hopefully I am uh, one small way in the world to make some people feel better about themselves. So I mean, that, that chapter I've just read is an example. So if there's somebody out there, one of your listeners who... And has done something that they've never told anyone they feel incredibly guilty and, and awful about. You go, well, you know, relax. We've all done equally awful things. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's for me, I, I, you know, I haven't got the answers. I'm just telling a, hopefully an amusing and, and uh, uh, a relatable story. Sure. Um, one obvious change in this book from the others, and uh, never mind my Freudian slip, um, is that the title's no longer what you don't want to be. It's part <laughs> Yeah. And, and, and that's something. Oh gosh! I mean, it, 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 it's strange, Maggie, writing a book about yourself um, because it's sort of a. It's you know, it's all out there. But but but, but I I ended my fourth decade, fat forty and five, um, and I've put some changes in place that I detail in that first book. Um, but but I'm very very keen to start my fifth decade, fit fifty and fired up. I, I don't want the, the English um, poet Philip Larkin. Um, had a wonderful uh, phrase that he thought the years between 20 and 40 were the fillet steak of life. And after that, it was the offcuts. In <laughs> offcuts, hopefully. And, and, and for me, I, I, I'm spending my life trying to prove him wrong. So, so I, I want my fifth decade to be the very, very best decade of my life. And there's a, there's a real, uh, there's a profound point for me in the difference between the first book and the, the second book, uh, and, and, and you're right about the title, but it's, it's about the time. There's a huge difference between one year and ten, year, ten years. And, and, and Chekhov had a quote, which is, any fool can face a crisis. It's day-to-day living that's the real challenge. And so for me, this is, you know, I'm proud of the fat 45 year. I, I, you know, gave up alcohol and I lost the weight and connected with my family. But, you know, just having a fabulous year you know, only gets you so far. What I'm trying to do is have a fabulous second half of my life. And I don't mean, you know, having a constant party and drinking lots of beer and watching daytime telly. I mean making a meaningful contribution to the world, being comfortable in my own skin, having a smile on my dial, but doing that on a 
day-to-day basis, um, you know, over, you know, over 10, 20, 30 years. So the, 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 so the titles, it, it, it's, it's an aspiration, because uh, I'm not yet 50. Uh, that's, the, that's the first line of the book. I have a confession to make. I'm not yet 50. I'm, I'm very near to 50. And, and by the time half the people that buy the book, you know, I will be 50. But it's, it's an intention. I would like to be fit 50 and fired up, not... You know, funny though those tapes and DVDs are of grumpy old men and grumpy old women, I, I just don't want to take part. I think the alternative, you know, you, oh gosh, my sight is failing and my knees ache. Yeah, yeah, but mate, but you could be underground. It's, it's a God-given blessing to have your 50s. Rather than moaning about it, you know, why don't you rip the joy out of it? Yes, uh, as our population, of course, ages... Um, th- this notion of you know fifty really being the prime of one's life is really coming to the fore, isn't it? I mean, we we the whole perspective of what it means to age is changing, isn't it? Yes, and, and I, I think I, I think we will evolve our understanding of it. So I, I don't buy into all this rubbish about fifty is the new thirty. I mean, no, it's not. Fifty is the new fifty. You know that, that there are, you know inevitable things that getting old involve and that's great so for me it's not about rep i mean i I write in the chapter about the awful awful surgery disaster that's been foisted upon women where you get a nice happy 55 year old woman that's made to feel bad about herself and then has surgery to try and look like a 27 year old it's just i mean it makes me it actually makes me want to cry it's just a disaster i mean as a as a species we're better than that i would like to think but you're right we are getting to a stage where in the past, you know, my grandfather's grandfather would be lucky to get to 50, and if he did, he'd just want him to be eking out a couple of years before he, you know, popped off this mortal coil. Whereas for you and I and our children, they will probably get to 80 or 90, barring awful accidents. Um, and so then you, ha- you have a, a choice. You, you look at those years and you go, are they going to be a slow decline where I just manage a never-ending process of frustrations, disappointments, and compromises, or can I have a really joyous, meaningful, compassionate, courageous, you know, last half of my life? Not trying to replicate what my life was. I mean, I wouldn't want to replicate what my life was like when I was 20. I mean, lovely when I was 20, but I don't want to live it when I'm 50. So I think there's sort of a, there's a net, a bit like feminism goes through different, different types through the eras, all of which is a sort of building on the wonderful achievements of the past, but it evolves. I think our understanding of being 50 and 60 and 70 will evolve. So, you know, to start with, oh, I don't know, people may dye their hair, have surgery and, you know, buy a sports car. And you go, well, just, well, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I applaud the attempt to not give in, but maybe take the same passion and put it to something more appropriate and genuinely joyous that will give you serenity and happiness. So, I, I, I mean, I'm, Again, I haven't got any of the answers. I'm, I'm, I'm a sort of a one-man experiment. Is that's what I'm trying to do, to be authentically joyous, not deny. I mean, I, I did the City to Surf race in Sydney yesterday with my children. Um, and, you know, the happiest day of my life. It was fantastic. Um, but 15 years ago, I would have run it. Yesterday, I walked it. But I didn't think it, I didn't enjoy it any less because I walked it. I probably enjoyed it even more. So intelligently trying to maximize your middle and old age. Yes, and I guess that whole notion of the meaningful contribution as well, that you know, sometimes in the early years you're making yourself, um, there is an element, maybe necessarily an element of selfishness, 
that perhaps as one ages, you can actually start thinking about the contribution and what you're going to do now to help the younger generation, make the world better, you know, leave something. Uh, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And, and for me, you know, it, it's also, again, why it's really important, this is not self-help, it's just one person's story, is obviously if you haven't got certain bases covered, um, you know, so if I, I get, I've had 16,000 emails and letters from people who've read the first two books, which is lovely. I've replied to every single one of them. Um, but if someone, which somebody did, wrote to me and said, I'm a 52-year-old unemployed Detroit car worker and I, my house is about to be taken back by the bank, um, you know, then notions of self-help and yoga and you know, work-life balance are probably not what he needs. He needs to get himself another job pretty pretty quick smart. Uh, so you need to be a, have appropriate uh, conversations with whichever audience you happen to be talking to. But if we are talking to somebody who has made him or herself um, secure in certain ways, then I think it is right that halfway through you have a change of direction. You pause and reflect. So, so if, the ba- if certain bases are covered, then you know I, I know people who have millions of dollars, but they still don't think it's enough. So they will spend between <laughs> the age of 50 and 60 turning their $11 million fortune into a $12 million fortune. And, and, and that is absolutely fine if that's what they want to do. But if, I was, if that person was my son or daughter, I would say, well, maybe 11 is enough. You know, you know, maybe you could focus on something else and, and, and you could still have lots of money. I mean, you, you haven't got to live in a cave. So there are lots and lots of people, especially in developed Western societies, where with, with the secularization of society over the last 200 years, you go, you know, what are we doing? I mean, I mean, I mean why are we here and what is the point? So exactly as you say, to start with, you need to make your way in the world and not be a burden on society and hopefully do some, you know, make a contribution in the workforce and all those wonderful things. But when you get to a certain age, you know, telling a 61-year-old woman it's about enhancing shareholder value for Procter & Gamble, I mean, I mean, if that excites you, great, but it's, you shouldn't feel guilty if it doesn't. Yes, your experience in you know in becoming mired in this sort of corporate world, creating shareholder value, is you know it's unfortunately all too common. I read Manhood too, and you know like you, I was taken with Biddulph's suggestion about every man should be forced to take his 40th year off. Um, why do you think we've evolved to a world where you know men allow themselves to be enslaved by jobs that lead them to put their lives on hold until retirement? God, oh, it's it's so lovely talking to you. It, 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 it's something I've thought about, uh, gosh, for 10 years. And, and I, I don't think, well, I mean, there may be one or two, but I don't think many people actively choose that. So for me, it's, it's, it's the difference between sliding and deciding, is you slide into a life. You know, you, 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 it, you know it's busy, and you get addicted to, to busyness. It's what everyone else does. It's what's expected of you. Your employer keeps on dangling the next job or whatever in front of you. So what happens in many, many cases, and happened in, in my life, Maggie, is it takes you know, one of the big four, a, a, a death, an illness, uh, a divorce, or a redundancy, to make you pause and reflect. And, and that's true in my life. If I hadn't lost my job when I turned 40, I wouldn't have done what I've done over the last 10 years. Because you know, you're, scrabbling to, you're scrabbling to keep up and you know, progress in the world. And then something you know, happens that makes you think, hold on, what am I 
doing? You know, what, what, what type of person do I want to be? What, what, what are my dreams and my hopes? And, you, you, know, you know, I better sort this out soon. Now, you know, I'll be, I'll be dead in 40 years' time. I've got to get going. But it, it's a clever man or woman that does that without one of those big four things. And, and, and part of my secret hope, so don't tell anybody, please, it is that one of my books can help one or two people out there have that reflection without having to go through a bereavement, an illness, a divorce, or a redundancy. So if, and, and a couple of people have written to me, which makes me the happiest man alive, and said, you know, I read your book on holiday, it made me think, then, then I'm dancing around the house thinking, well, that's one person who, who didn't have to. You know, but when people write to me, you know, they say, I'm 63, I'm on my second uh, marriage, I don't know the names of any of my children's friends, I had a successful career, but I'm living an old age full of regret. What am I supposed to say? I mean, what? I mean, God, I mean, so I hope that you know people buy my book because it's going to make a plane journey more, you know, enjoyable, less boring. Hopefully, make them chuckle. But then the after effect may be that they think about a couple of things. Yes. Why? Why do you think, um, as you put it, you know, you get you get this letter from this, you know, poor sixty-year-old sod. How does this? destroy the world uh, you know in other words why is this important beyond the personal tragedy of it well I mean, again i mean i I've, interesting story i mean i studied theology at, at university so i've been thinking about these things for 48 and a half years now um is on one level it isn't so if you choose to view the world just through an economic prism and and people are economic units of value rather than human souls well, then what does it matter if somebody, you know, if, if I'm talking to my, you know, my grandfather about, who's he, long since departed, but about work-life balance, he wouldn't know what I'm talking about. I mean, he, he literally wouldn't know. He'd, he'd be like talking to a Martian or in a different language. He'd go, just, just, you know, shut up, that's what happens. And if you were a peasant in the 11th century in France, you know, notions of, oh, gosh, am I enjoying my life? I mean, people would think you're an idiot. So it is, you know, it, it's how you choose to view the world. For me, I think... You know, I'm a long-range optimist and think that humanity eventually gets round to solving everything. You know, I think we're on, a, we're on an upward trajectory slowly. So we abolish slavery, we give women the vote, we'll sort out terrorism and the environment, we'll, we'll solve the gap between rich and poor. This is, you know, this is what I choose to believe. Eventually, it may take centuries. And my view of the lot of humanity isn't that you work at a soul-destroying job that you find utterly pointless and dull, and then you die. And that just happens to be my, my view. It's a very good question. Does it matter if that is what lots of people do? Well, not if you don't care, I suppose. I mean, you know, you can choose to ignore, you know, the starving millions in Africa. You can choose to ignore, you know, and, and so it's a personal choice, really. I, I, think, I think we're all better than that, and, you know, slowly with false starts and, mistakes we'll all get to a stage where people live you know lives of compassion courage joy and confidence rather than feeling slightly depressed and you know mental health just look at the mental health statistics you go my gosh i think we can do better and and clearly the books have hit a major chord i mean did you realize when you you know when you actually uh started to write it in the first book that 40 fired, um, that you would hit such a major chord and that it would, you know, there'd be a kind of groundswell that you'd have a whole new career around it. 
Oh, God, no, not at all. I mean, when I wrote it, I didn't have an agent, I didn't have a publisher. I mean, if you, I mean, if you want to have a fun afternoon, turn up to a publisher saying, I'm an unpublished author who's written a book about himself. I mean, they, you know, they wipe tears of laughter away from their cheeks. I mean, <laughs> you get, join the queue along the other 5,000 people who've written a book about themselves. You know, so I, I didn't even, I didn't think I'd be published. And, and one of the, and, and I didn't mind is, is the, truth uh it, one of the one of the joys i'm incredibly lucky incredibly lucky is i wrote that first book without i mean it's pure vanity or catharsis or whatever i just wrote it because i wanted to i there was no concessions to any audience or any publisher or any input so in some ways utterly selfish in other ways utterly pure i just wrote the bloody book and people in you know, the editing process, you know, some people said, oh, gosh, could you change the ending? This is a bit of a shame you go back to advertising. And I go, no, because that's what I did. Other people, you know, some of it's a bit dark. Could you change that? No, that's how I feel. It just is what it is. You know, could you change it to appeal more to women? No, I can't. I won't. It, you know, just take it or leave it. It's my story. Now, the fact that then I was blessed and fortunate enough for it to be published and it touched a cause means it gave me the courage to do the same for my next two books. It's just, it's this amazing thing where the success of them, and the first one's been made into a TV series in, in America by the makers of Friends, which is, you know, thrilling and lovely. But you go, but that's, that's because they want to, not because I wrote it to be something that's easily to adaptable into a TV program. It's just an authentic thing that I throw out there. And the response is, well, it's wonderful, but it's completely surprising to me. I... I, I you know, for the life of me, you know, well, on, on one level, I have no idea why anyone would want to read about my life. On the other hand, I sort of get it because what these books are, they are not about my life. That may be the excuse and the subject matter on the paper, but what seems to be happening, which is something I'll thank the Lord for every morning, is people read it and then they think about their lives, not about my life. So they may enjoy... And, and which I love and, and, and find it humorous and moving, certain stories about my family, and that's great. But, but the real effect is it makes them think about theirs. And, and, you know, I wish I was clever enough to have done that on purpose, but um, <laughs> it just seems to have happened. Look, um, speaking of audience reaction, I have to ask you about um, about Kate. <laughs> She's a great character in the book. I absolutely love her. She's my favorite character. I even love her better than Nigel. <laughs> But does she mind being the wry cynic in the spotlight? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I am the luckiest man alive. It's our 20th wedding anniversary on Wednesday, um, uh, and so I am blessed by a supportive, by a supportive wife that lets me write, you know, a book called Overworked and Underlaid. I mean, obviously, I'm not saying I am, but people could draw that conclusion. And and if, you, you're right in the uh, in the third book that there's been a couple of reviews that, that have called her the deliciously cynical Kate. Um, and I think that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so the kids call her the dream crusher. Because <laughs> I have all these harebrained you know, ideas that I'm going to make a living as an author or whatever else. But, but uh, I mean, the short answer is no, she doesn't mind. Um, I, I have tried my hardest to not make anyone in any of the books, apart from myself, feel bad or look bad. So I, I'm the goose in the books. So although I write Kate, 
you know, based obviously on how she actually is in our life and marriage, um, you, you know, as the deliciously cynical person, I am thrilled to hear you say she is your favourite character because that is the response. If, if I actually thought I was writing it so people would call up and say, gosh, your wife is a bitch, I would be mortified and I would buy all the copies of the book and get them pulped. That's not what... So her mother, I'll tell you a, a secret story, her mother thought that Fat 40 and Five made, made Kate look bad. Yet every single other, without exception, every single other person who read that book and wrote to me or spoke to me loved Kate and said, you made her out to be wonderful. So that's the tightrope I'm walking is, you know, I love her dearly and she is fantastic. And I would, I would be extraordinarily upset if, if people read it and thought she was horrible. If they think maybe she pulls me, you know, pulls me down to size, well then, well, she does. <laughs> do, do you sometimes feel, though, even as you're writing, um, that, you know, Kate, Nigel, and the kids are actually, in many ways, the, the, at least the Kate, Nigel, and the kids on the page are characters, sort of created, selected, but in many ways, you know, a little bit different from the living, breathing people? Yeah, well, uh, it, it is so nice chatting to you. It, it is, is absolutely, in one way, where I, I, I'm not sure who... who said it, but maybe Somerset Maugham or somebody, but, but, you know, autobiographies are the least honest form of literature. <laughs> and you think, well, that's an interesting thought. Um, so, so if you, you, you learn more about a writer from a novel than you do from a piece of non-fiction. Now, obviously, he was probably exaggerating to, to make a point, but inevitably, in the process of, I mean, just like that story I've told you, as in I'm, I'm not wanting to make Kate look bad. You know, maybe she is bad. I mean, I don't think she is, but I think there is an inevitable part of self-censorship, even if you're thinking, you're trying not to, that uh, that goes on when you write about yourself. So, you know, just in the stories that I choose to tell, you know, I could tell a hundred stories about the children that are dull and boring where my daughter isn't wearing a diving mask at breakfast. I mean, there's a there's an inevitable selection process that goes on. So, I, I again, I think it's a, it's a wonderful question. It is you know, I I am attempting very genuinely to be honest and truthful and have a, uh, an accurate reflection of our lives. But you know, you know, I select the stories. Mm -hmm. So you know, I, I'm to make other people look nice, me look silly, you know, you know, maybe I'm not as big a goose as I make myself out to be in the books and all that sort of stuff. So so yeah. You've you've done this you've done this before, Maggie. I've done this before. <laughs> well I I've I've written non fiction, so I know what it's like. Um yes, you have to select. But uh, I do have to tell you that Snotto has now joined into uh my kids' car watching. Oh fantastic. <laughs> have they not done it before? No. no. <laughs> I love those kids, uh, th th those journeys, and, and maybe it will change for future generation, who knows, but very wonderful, unique times. Every family has memories of being locked up in a car, you know, going through. I mean, in, in my childhood, my father was a chain smoker, and, you know, we would drive down awful English roads for, you know, seven hours to visit our grandparents, you know, in a car with all the windows up because it rained in England for seven hours, with a chain-smoking driver. <laughs> it's just great. Some of the strongest memories of being, you know, confined in a car 
um, you know, with your family. Sure. Now, look, uh, we don't have a lot of time left, but I have to ask you, are you, um, when, when you sit down to write, you know, your next book, do you kind of put it out there? Are you, you know, planning your super sophisticated 60? Um, or uh, do you just kind of live for a little while and then sit down and say, now I've got something to write about? Uh, I think the latter. Um, so, so I don't, you know, I'm not on Facebook. I don't do Twitter. I don't blog. Uh, I, I'm, I'm mean with my writing, and I don't make any apologies of that. So in the back of my mind, I suspect that I will write sad, sixty, and saggy, and slim, sexy, and seventy, and I don't know, enthusiastic, eighty, and exhausted, or you know, whatever. So in the back of my mind, I think if Lara Bingle can have a television program once a week, I think Nigel Marsh can have a book once a decade. I reckon that's a fair trade. So back of my mind, I think maybe I'll write a book in ten years' time. You know, maybe I'll write one next month. Who knows? But I feel no pressure to do so. I'll just, you know, do the second thing you suggested, which is live my life. You know, try and be a a decent man and father and husband and and get on with my life. And and then, you know, so I'm not, I'm not trying to be a reality star or something. You know, I I don't want to live my life for other people, if that makes sense, so I can write about it. I just want to live my life and, you know, do the things I say in Fit 50 and Fired Up. And then if in nine years' time I think, gosh, a couple of interesting things have happened that I think maybe I can write amusingly about that may make people's plane journeys less boring, then I'll hopefully be on the phone to you again in 2022. That's right. And I'll, I'll look forward to the 60 version. <laughs> So that's wonderful. Thanks so much for talking to me today, uh, Nigel. And listeners, don't forget to join us next month when we interview Margaret Wertheim, author of Physics on the Fringe, Smoke Rings, Circulons, and Alternative Theories of Everything. Bye for now.